It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is episode number eight in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, March the 26th. First, I'll be talking to the founder and director of Sydney-based consulting firm, 50 Mention, Lyndall Spooner about how marketing has changed for companies. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and jobs figures. But now, let's talk to Lyndall Spooner. Well, Lyndall, Fifth Dimension has a whole heap of really impressive clients like Foxtel and Coles and Westpac, Commonwealth Bank. Uh, But marketing has changed a lot and customers now have many more choices. And what are the big challenges for companies now when they're marketing? What advice would you give Well. You know, it depends on what kind of company that you are. And the companies that are the most challenged are the ones that have the established business models. And they really have to change to the the way that the world works. Basically, at Fifth Dimension, we say that the marketing funnel, the traditional marketing funnel that was developed back in like 1898, has actually been completely disrupted with technology. And companies need to rethink where they are, how they talk, and how they can connect with consumers. And they need to be not just thinking about broad marketing strategies, which is what, you know, when we think about marketing, we think of mass advertising. It could be brand advertising. It could be product-related. But they need to think of 
the product or, or the purchase journey and they need to work out how they're going to get involved in that purchase journey. And that, that becomes very difficult for companies that are used to kind of living off the fact that they're, they've got a big market share and, you know, they're one of the top brands known in the market. So they, they think that their saliency is what's going to get them into that consideration set. When the reality is today, consumers can go online, no matter what we want, we can Google it, and a whole lot of brands can come up that we've never, ever heard of before. And it's highly likely that a consumer is going to consider those brands and potentially choose those brands if they're better for their needs. So what strategies should companies have then to deal with that? There's a couple of things. The, the first thing is that when consumers are thinking about their needs in that purchase process, they're very specific about what they want. And companies need to make sure that they've got a good offer, something that is compelling and stands up to whatever the latest competition has come out with. So you can't just rely on your brand name to get you through. You do need to have a very, very compelling proposition. And the second thing is you actually need to be present where the consumer is going to look for this information, which is increasingly online. You know, 20, 30 years ago, when we were looking for brands, a lot of our decisions were really dictated by who we walked past. So it was all about, you know, physical presence. But today, it's about having a digital presence and having a very strong digital presence and a compelling offer. You really need those two things as the basis to compete. That means companies have to be aware, not only in social media, but other outlets as well? In multiple outlets. And it doesn't necessarily have to be social media. It really depends on the category that you're in, to be honest. And the more the complex the decision that people are going through, the more you probably need to also look at things like trusted advisors. So we do a lot of work with brands like HCF, which are in private health insurance. And, you know, that's a category that people find quite confusing. And when you when you get into categories that are a lot harder, you know, it's not just do I pick the chocolate biscuit or the strawberry one when it's down to am I going to make, how am I going to choose the right health insurance product for my family? They often reach out to third-party sources. So the more complex the brand decision, the more your brand needs to also have those relationships and to be seen as a recommended brand in, by a number of different agencies. Which means you need to, you as a company need to have third-party recommenders for clients. You do. In, in, yes, in some, well, in some categories, they need to have those strong relationships because we know that a lot of people will, do, will default their decision-making to someone else because they don't want to stuff it up. They don't want to make a bad decision. And so they, they will look in some categories and say, you know, especially if it's like superannuation, and they'll go, well, look, other people know more about this. I'm going to seek their advice. So you want their, your brand to be one of the brands that those people are going to recommend. So, I mean, it's obviously sort of health insurance, superannuation. Uh, what are the other industries that would have to change? Well, I think a lot of industries already are using third-party uh, recommendations. And it, I, I don't think it's a proactive thing. I think it's a reactive thing. A lot of, especially when it comes down to financial services, Anything where that sense of risk to the consumer is great. I mean, psychologically, we're all driven to minimise risk and to minimise loss. So the more you think that there is a greater loss, the more likely you are to seek advice 
on your decisions when you don't think you're the expert. And companies have had to do that. I mean, if you look at the mortgage market, it's something like over 60% of mortgages actually go through a broker or or the person is influenced by some form of third-party recommendation. So banks have had to go down that path. They really didn't have a choice. But what's good for the consumer is that in order to go down that path and to be recommended, they've actually had to make their products more competitive. So it's not like you're going to, you know, like I said, 20 years ago, win a customer because you're the bank on the high street. On the digital street, when people are looking now, any any brand is within reach. So if you want to be recommended through a third party, you actually have to have a, a good, compelling proposition. You can't, you just can't avoid that today. So whether it's someone's going to go through a third party or they're going to, you know, use social media or consumers' recommendations, what they're looking for or they're able to compare products very easily, they want something that's going to stand up to say, this is a good offer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the cheapest offer, but it's the offer that's going to best meet their needs and ideally fits their budget or is worth paying a little bit more. The brand can demonstrate why the consumer should actually pay a little bit more. Isn't it, wouldn't it be about creating a web of uh, marketing touch points for the company? Would, that have, would they have to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's where you can't really rely on single channels. You can't really rely on your mass brand strategy anymore. You really need to find out where your consumers are going in their decision process. And exactly as you said, Leon, you need that network. You need to make sure that you're covering off all the major places where you have a chance to disrupt that decision process and get someone to consider your brand. I mean, how, I mean, how many touch points would there be? You know, it, again, it depends on the category. You, some people can make, you can make a decision in, in two seconds and not even think about it. I mean, a lot of our decisions, we don't put a lot of effort into. We, we would go crazy if we did. We're making decisions all the time. But bigger decisions can often take people a very long time. You know, it could take them days, weeks or months to actually make a decision. And the longer the decision process, potentially the more touch points there might be. So it becomes even more complicated how you are going to to talk to people. But you have to have a compelling offer. I mean, do you, do you go for a strategy where you try and cover everything or go for where the main touch points are and just have a really compelling offer. Because if your offer is not compelling, it really doesn't matter if you've covered 50 touch points, you're still not going to be selected by the consumer. You have to have the compelling offer to back you in that strategy. And so the touch point has to be something that's compelling for the consumer. Well, the touch point is what gives you access to the consumer, the product, the service, the way you market it, the way you talk about how it meets consumers' needs, the benefits, what what might be different about your product to other companies and why it's worth what you're charging is really what wins the consumer over. But the touch point gives you access to deliver that message. One other thing, does this require a lot of ongoing dialogue? I think what it requires is Well, consumers' needs are going to be changing all the time. And sometimes what consumers want is driven by themselves and their personal, you know, changes to their environment or changes to their life stage. 
But there are also changes in their expectations that are driven by the market itself. So the more competitors or other companies come up with new products and new ideas, the minute they start to seed those into the market and we become aware of them, we start to want them. And so the pressure is on companies to not only really understand, you know, each consumer where they're at in their life and what they need, but to really look at the market and keep pace with the market. You just can't be complacent. You have to constantly innovate. You have to be making sure that your product, you know, stays relevant. And it could be also not just the product that you offer, but the way you deliver it. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about customer experience and customer experience is really critical. If if you've got a great product, but it's a horrible experience trying to get it, a lot of people will think it's not worth it. And 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 so it won't matter that you've done all this great work trying to reach them and tell them that you're great if it's a horrible experience trying to take it out. You've also got to take that into account. Well, that, that means that uh, marketing is become a whole lot more complicated for companies. They need to take it a lot more seriously now compared to 30 years ago. A lot more seriously. And it's really interesting because when you, you know, for my uh, experience in business, which is more years than I will admit to, uh, companies started off, let's just say, you know, 25 years ago, I'll admit that amount, that marketing was, oh, well, that's brand, isn't it? I mean, that's, they're the people who do our ad. That's not, that's not what it is today. That's the face of the business. That's the voice of the business. That's the part of the business that tells you, tells people what you do. It, it tries to connect with people. It tries to inform the business around how consumers are changing, what's happening in the market with competitors and what the business also needs to do, like I said, to change those customer experiences. So it, you're right, it's, it's a much more complex beast and what it's doing is bringing together um, the consumer into, that, into the business to make that business truly customer focused so that they can grow. Well, Lyndall, that's fascinating stuff and uh... Let's keep all of that in mind. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, the unemployment figures came in at 5.8%, which surprised everyone. What's your view? Sort of changes the the narrative around um, monetary policy and fiscal policy going forward. I think policymakers would be incredibly happy with the the data that came through yesterday. And And it was a really positive result for the Australian economy. Seems to be some way to go, though, because uh, there's differences in the age groups. Isn't it? Employment for those aged 15 to 24 is still down, isn't it? Yeah, so, so while the result was very positive from a national perspective, we do need to remember that there are still some groups um, across the labour market where labour market outcomes remain relatively weak. And, and one of those groups is younger people. So employment for people aged 15 to 24, that's down 3.8% compared with pre-crisis. And for the 25 to 34 age group, it's, it's down almost 3%. So that's two groups where you know, the unemployment rate is much higher than it was before. They, they still have a, a long way to go in order to get back to where they, they were before the pandemic began. We also continue to see some weakness in low-income jobs as well. So that's a little bit of a concern now that we're lifting uh, the JobKeeper wage supplement. Um, so there is a little bit of concern around that as well. But, you know, the headline figure is, is simply that employment in Australia right now 
is at the same level it was pre-crisis. So we've made up all that lost ground over the past 12 months. The uh, job losses among will seem to be higher among lower wage earners. I mean, wouldn't that be problematic ahead of the removal of JobKeeper and the reduction in JobSeeker? Well, that is a, a key concern because these lower-income earners, um, these ones who still haven't got their jobs back, they're, they're likely to be quite vulnerable from a financial standpoint. And, of course, we're, we're sort of pulling the, the rug out from, from underneath these people with the removal of JobKeeper and, and also the reduction in, in JobSeeker at the the same time. It is, there's been a lot of speculation about what might happen once these policies are, are lifted, and the expectation is that there will be some job losses, certainly in sectors that continue to be hampered by the pandemic. Um, so hospitality and tourism is an obvious example of that. Um, the arts sector, food and accommodation, all those sort of areas, you just see some impact from the pandemic. And so there is that risk that um, conditions deteriorate in those areas and, and workers could be affected there. Uh, now, Professor Jeff Ballin from University of Melbourne, who's no slouch in labour market analysis, says we could lose up to 250,000 jobs with the removal of JobKeeper. I mean, that's going to really affect the number. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big impact. And that might be partially offset by strength in other sectors that are currently doing quite well. Um, so there is going to be job losses, but we're hopeful that that is offset at least to some degree by um, strongly performing sectors. But there is there is obviously a risk that, you know, while employment has got back to where it was pre-crisis, it could be a short-lived recovery because we lift these policies and suddenly employment is declining again. This is going to be a, a big economic challenge uh, for Australia over the, the next few months because while the economy is in a reasonably good place to absorb the impact of removing these policies, these policies nevertheless are, you know, incredibly large and have done a really important role keeping the economy afloat over the past 12 months. What was the issue with uh, full-time employment? I mean, that uh, that accounted for a major part of the gains. Well, it accounted for all the gains uh, in February. So while employment was up 88,700, uh, full-time employment was up 89,100. So it accounted for everything. Um, in the past five months, full-time employment has been really quite strong. So it's accounted for around 84% of employment gains over that period. Um, so the past five months from a recovery standpoint have been really positive for the Australian economy because when the economy is creating a lot of full-time jobs, that's usually a, a really good sign for the overall economy. And so that's absolutely a bright spot that we've got right now. Earlier in the, the recovery, that, that wasn't the case. So in the first few months of the recovery, beginning in June, there was barely any full-time employment growth at all. Uh, but luckily, that has shifted in the past five months. And what you're saying is uh, full-time job recovery is, a, is usually associated with a strong economy. Yeah, that's right. That, that's precisely what we, we want to see at, at this point in, in the recovery. And so that has me somewhat optimistic about our ability to absorb the impact of, of JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker. And, and for employment to continue to grow over the remainder of this year. The unemployment rate fell in every state and territory. Yeah, that's right. Um, employment gains across the board, which is always great to see. Um, the unemployment rate is down around 5.6% in, in New South Wales and, and Victoria, which is a pretty good result at this point in the, the recovery. It's a little bit better than the, the national average. It's still a little bit high in, in some areas of the economy. It is about 6.8% uh, in South Australia. Um, Queensland's at 6.1%. Western Australia's at, at 6%. So that's a, that's a little bit high. 
but they're all heading in the right direction and we're, we're optimistic that will continue going forward. The issues of being high in South Australia, Queensland and Western Australia, that would be because those states are usually associated with tourism. Although that's certainly, you know, one important factor, particularly in, you know, Queensland, which obviously has a, normally has a, a vibrant tourism sector, which simply can't really operate at, at this point in, in time. For these tourist hotspots, they really need the economy to, to fully open up with um, both domestic and international tourism returning to somewhat normal levels. And so those tourism hotspots are likely to experience heightened unemployment and, until that occurs. In terms of uh, hours being worked, um, January was uh, we saw a vacation-driven decline in hours worked. What we're seeing, what are we seeing now? Yeah, there's been a bit of volatility in hours worked over the past couple of months. In February, they jumped 6.1%, which uh, completely offset the uh, vacation-driven uh, decline that we saw in in January. Um, so that was a pretty good result. Nevertheless, um, hours worked is still about 0.8% lower than it was pre-crisis. So while employment has gotten back to where we were pre-crisis, hours worked is still a little bit below. And that means on average Australians are working fewer hours than they did before the crisis, which, you know, given everything that has happened over the past 12 months, does make sense. You know, relatively low levels of aggregate demand, um, you know, some sectors operating below capacity would all point towards, you know, the average worker working a little bit less than they did pre-crisis. So hours worked is, is something that we do need to keep track of. While employment, again, has gotten back to where it was, you know, we also want to see hours get back to above pre-crisis levels as well. But it's certainly heading in the, in the right direction. But the uh, reduction in hours work reflects uh, certain weaknesses in the economy, wouldn't it, uh, with there's a lower demand? Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, there, there is also this long-term sort of trend towards fewer hours worked on average, which partially reflects a sort of shift towards more part-time and, and casual working environments, more flexible working environments. But again, sort of over the last 12 months, the, the reduction in average hours worked is likely driven by uh, lower than normal aggregate demand and just a lot of businesses operating a little bit below capacity where, you know, that they want to keep staff on, but maybe they can't keep staff on at the, the hours that they would normally uh, work at. Um, so it's something that's happening there. The $64 question is, where does this leave the RBA? I mean, can we expect to see a change in rates and a change in policy from the RBA with these very solid figures? Well, it, it's certainly going to be interesting to see what they have to say about these results because they were much better than the Reserve Bank had expected. So just to put that into context, the Reserve Bank back in February forecast that the unemployment rate would be 6% by the end of this year. Um, it's currently 5.8%, so we're more than 10 months ahead of uh, the schedule that the Reserve Bank thought we were on. Now, in recent um, communications, they've committed to keeping uh, the cash rate at its current level um, until inflation gets back uh, consistently to within its 2 to 3% target band. Now, it's going to be interesting to see whether maybe the Reserve Bank shifts their communications a little bit, but certainly their commitment to low rates has been very strong in, in recent months. And I think it, it probably would hurt their credibility a little bit if within such a short period um, they, they go from having that strong commitment to, uh, you know, maybe even talking about the possibility of, of lifting rates. I think we do need to remember, though, that while the economy is doing reasonably well and the unemployment rate is down to a reasonable level, we need to get it much, much lower if we want to facilitate the sort of wage growth 
that we need to get inflation consistently within the band. Uh, we likely need an unemployment rate in the low fours at the very least. Uh, we need an underutilisation rate that is closer to 11 compared to 14.5% currently. Um, and that's going to be a difficult thing to achieve. It's not something that we've done uh, the, the recent past. So I think while it might be tempting to say that the Reserve Bank should raise rates or should at least consider raising rates, I think that would be premature at this point in time. I think if the Reserve Bank commits to low rates for the next few years, I think they can make you know solid inroads in, in, achieve, in achieving that uh, that unemployment rate in the low fours, which I think is what they should uh, target. At the moment, wages growth was uh, came in fairly low. <laughs> Absolutely. We need wage growth of at least 3%, ideally 35 maybe even 4%, and, and currently it's down below 1.5%. We are, we're a long way from where we need to be on, on the wage front. And we have struggled to generate solid wage growth largely for the last eight years. And so it's no sure thing that we'll get back to, to wage growth of above 3%, which is why the Reserve Bank's commitment to low rates is going to be really important. And, and that means uh, we're going to be in a very low inflation environment for quite some time. Well, potentially. I mean, it is likely that uh, inflation will pick up a little bit because obviously the economy is doing much better than it was uh, six to 12 months ago. But we do need to remember that before the crisis, inflation wasn't particularly high. Uh, core inflation was at the 1.7% range, which is historically very low and, and considerably below the, the Reserve Bank's target of 2 to 3%. Um, so it, it will take quite an effort from policymakers, and that's both the Reserve Bank and, and federal government, in order to sort of facilitate the economic conditions required to get inflation consistently within the Reserve Bank's target. Well, Callum, that's all fascinating, and thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. So what's happening in the news? Well, President Joe Biden's economic advisers are preparing to recommend spending as much as US $3 trillion, at $3.8 trillion Aussie, on a sweeping set of efforts aimed at boosting the economy, reducing carbon emissions and narrowing economic inequality, beginning with a giant infrastructure plan that may be financed in part through tax increases on corporations and the rich. After months of internal debate, Mr Biden's advisers are expected to present a proposal to the President this week that recommends carving his economic agenda into separate legislative pieces rather than trying to push a mammoth package through Congress. Mrs Biden supports all of the individual spending and tax cut proposals under consideration, but it is unclear whether he will back splitting his agenda into pieces or what legislative strategy he and Democrat leaders will pursue to maximise the chances of pushing the new programs through Congress, given their narrow majorities in both chambers. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell say more must be done to limit the damage from the coronavirus pandemic and to promote a full economic recovery. While both struck upbeat notes about the future of the economy in prepared testimony on Tuesday before the House Financial Services Committee, they also warned that the economy needs help. It marked the first joint appearance by the two economic leaders in their current jobs, and it was Yellen's first congressional appearance since taking over as Treasury Secretary. The economy fell into a deep recession a year ago, and though it began to amend by summer, nearly 10 million of the jobs lost have not been recovered. Powell testified that recovery is far from complete, so the Fed will continue to provide the economy with the support it needs for as long as it takes. The Fed will not lose sight of the millions of Americans who are still hurting, including lower-wage workers in the services sector, African-Americans, Hispanics and other minority groups that have been especially hit hard, Powell said. The Fed kept its benchmark interest rate at a record low of 0% to 0.25% at its meeting last week, 
and even though it significantly boosted its economic forecast, it continued to signal that its benchmark rate would remain unchanged through 2023. Under the March 2020 COVID-19 relief law, the Treasury Secretary and Fed Chairman are required to testify before Congress on a quarterly basis to provide updates. And the level of unemployment that needs to be achieved before wage growth kicks in and the government needs to begin budget repair is lower than previously thought, Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy told the Senate Estimates hearing. Despite the economy being far ahead of where it was expected to be in the March quarter, Dr Kennedy said an unemployment rate of about 4.5% would need to be reached before wages rose. The unemployment rate is currently at 5.8%. And Australian businesses have received a windfall of work as the economy continues to rebound, sending a key measure of activity to a three-month high. The IHS Market Flash Australia Composite Output Index, which measures activity based on a survey of businesses, reached 556.2 in March, the strongest reading since December and building on February's 53.7 number. A score above 50 indicates growth. Survey respondents pointed to the strengthening demand, easing of COVID-19 restrictions, coupled with low interest rates and stimulus programs in helping drive activity. And Crown Resorts has confirmed an $8 billion takeover offer from US private equity giant Blackstone. Crown said its board had not yet formed a view on the merits of the proposal and would start a process to assess it. And James Packer is taking the biggest gamble of his life and is backing the commitment he made to the Bergen Inquiry to allow the Crown Resort's board of directors to act independently and in the interests of all shareholders. But the proposed takeover bid faces a number of hurdles and regulatory risks abound. These include several inquiries into the casino giant by state-based regulators, including two royal commissions, looming class actions and financial regulator Austrac investigating Crown for potential breaches of Australia's anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws. Blackstone, which manages US $619 billion, that's $800 billion Aussie, of assets globally, already owns about 10% of Crown. The private equity firm has been operating in Australia for 11 years and has invested $14 billion across Australia and New Zealand, predominantly in commercial and industrial real estate. Blackstone sees an opportunity in acquiring Crown's property assets and it has likely weighed up the regulatory risks it knows of so far. But the offer is at this stage just indicative and non-binding. This means it is subject to a number of conditions including making sure the casino is deemed fit and proper to hold its casino licences in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. There also need to be a unanimous recommendation from Crown's board and a commitment from all Crown directors to vote in favour of the proposal as well as approval from Blackstone's investment committee. A New South Wales Gaming Minister, Victor Dominello, warns any takeover of Crown Resorts is likely to take months to get the necessary approval as analysts pour cold water over hopes US investment giant Blackstone could dramatically raise its bid. Mr Dominello said New South Wales Parliament was considering the recommendations from the state's independent inquiry into Crown, which found the company was not suitable to hold its Sydney casino licence. But Blackstone's bid would probably need to wait on the completion of royal commissions into Crown in Victoria and West Australia. And data from the Insurance Council of Australia shows that so far policyholders have lodged 11,700 insurance claims associated with the devastating storms and flooding in New South Wales. The ICA noted that further claims have been lodged since those numbers were collected and more expected in the coming days and weeks, meaning it remains too early to estimate the overall cost of the flooding. ICA claims data shows the areas with the most claims are the New South Wales mid-north coast towns of Port Macquarie, Kempsey, Lauritown and Tari, and west of Sydney around Penrith and in the Hawkesbury-Pian Valley. This remains an active natural disaster and it will take some time to gain a clearer picture of the damage, said Andrew Hall, CEO of the Insurance Council of Australia. Insurers expect a large number of claims will be lodged in coming days as property owners begin returning to homes and businesses. 
while it is too early to estimate the cost of the damage to properties, the ICA suggested the February 2020 East Coast storms and flooding event can be viewed as a point of comparison. These events drove insurance losses of almost $1 billion. Since the 2011 Brisbane floods, insurers now use a standard flood definition for home building and contents policies, the council observed, and residential policyholders must make an explicit decision to exclude flood when buying or renewing a policy. The intense flooding experience this year contrasts starkly with the bushfire crisis that Australia endured last year, when drought conditions resulted in large parts of the country being ravaged by intense fires. Changing conditions have been attributed to a La Nina weather pattern that is affecting Australia this year, which typically brings more rainfall and tropical cyclones during the summer months. And former Federal Liberal MP Sophie Mirabella has been handpicked by the Morrison government to join the Fair Work Commission, a move Labor says should send a chill down the spine of workers. Ms Mirabella, who held the regional Victorian seat of Indi between 2001 and 2013, is one of five new commissioners to have been selected by Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter. Her pay will range from $387,000 if she's appointed a commissioner to $470,000 if she's made a deputy commissioner. It will be the second government job Ms Mirabella has had since losing a seat. The Abbott government appointed her to the board of the Australian Submarine Corporation. Since 2016, she's worked as general manager of government and media relations for Gina Reinhardt's company Hancock Prospecting. Ms Mirabella, a Liberal Conservative, is also a lawyer. She was a polarising figure while in Parliament, and Labor has expressed concern at her imminent appointment to the Industrial Empire. And a controversial plan to allow domestic violence survivors fulfilling abusive relationships to access thousands of dollars from their superannuation accounts is no longer federal government policy. Critics of the proposal said abuse victims should not have to fund their escapes from dangerous situations. The measure was first floated in 2018 as part of a suite of proposals aimed at helping women during relationship breakdowns. Women would have been allowed to withdraw up to $10,000 from their superannuation accounts under the plan on compassionate grounds. But domestic violence groups feared such a proposal could be rorted by abusive partners who could force women to apply for early access to superannuation. In Senate estimates on Monday night, Minister for Women Maurice Payne confirmed the government had dumped the policy after feedback from superannuation funds, legal groups and family violence experts. And Premier Investments' half-year net profit rose 88.9% to $188.2 million after revenue increased 8.4% to $795.8 million and the firm indicated it will retain pandemic support payments of JobKeeper, saying it will do this consistent with the Australian Federal Government's policy of keeping people in jobs and connected to their employers during this once-in-a-century health crisis. By defying calls to pay back JobKeeper subsidies, Premier is behaving the same way as Harvey Norman and Accent Group, other major beneficiaries of the pandemic fuel surge in spending. Premier is one of the nation's largest retail chains and owns brands such as Smiggle, Peter Alexander, Just Jeans, JJ's, Dottie, Portman's and Jackie E. An Australian retail turnover fell 1.1% in February 2021, seasonally adjusted according to preliminary retail figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And in a reflection of the state of the economy and lack of demand, profits for Ur Media, the billboard advertising group that also owns Junkie Media, fell 36% to $180 million in 2020 on revenues of $426.5 million, down 34% for the year. 
and Graincore will expand its core bulk handling business to include commodities like wood chips, cement and fertiliser in a bid to boost earnings from its rural infrastructure and port network. The company said on Wednesday that it expected the new business and other initiatives to generate $25 million in annualised earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortisation by 2023-24. Graincore is also looking to generate cash through the sale of country storage sites that are no longer part of its core network and the former oil seeds refining plant in Brisbane. The move to diversify into wood chips, cement and fertiliser handling comes with Graincore's seven port terminals on the east coast booked out late into the year after farmers produced the second biggest grain crop in Australia's history. And the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has hit Westpac New Zealand with formal compliance notices for material failures in reporting its liquidity over eight years, forcing the bank to undertake independent reviews and hold more liquid assets. The regulatory action is yet another blow to Westpac, which is still reeling from agreeing last year to pay a record $1.3 billion penalty to Austrac, given the bank's millions of breaches of financial crimes laws. And Rio Tinto continues to be at pains to repair its damaged Indigenous relations by improving its cultural heritage management in a bid to avoid future scandals like the Dukang Gorge cave blast. The mining giant on Tuesday held virtual seminars to demonstrate the steps it had taken to make amends after blowing up the 46,000-year-old rock shelters in Western Australia's Pilbara region in May last year. The destruction sparked international outrage and claimed the scalps of key executives. The seminars included presentations from board and executive committee members as well as experts in the field to outline actions to Rio Tinto had introduced to strengthen its cultural heritage performance and governance. Rio Tinto has also formed an Indigenous Advisory Committee with the aim of gleaning a better understanding of Indigenous culture and issues in Australia, including at board level, and looking at the gaps in current protocols that led to the detonation. The dual-listed company's upper echelons have long been criticised for being too detached from their cash cow, Pilbara Iron Ore Industry, with WA's now former Aboriginal Affairs Minister and Yamatage man, Ben Wyatt, saying a chasm had emerged between its London-based board and the region. The miners' new chief executive, Danish businessman Jacob Stausholm, has said the cave destruction should never have happened and the company would seek to repair its relationship with traditional owners. And fallen building tycoon Daniel Grollo has proposed a dramatic rescue plan for its collapsed Grocon construction empire and would tip in $10 million in the proceeds of selling his luxury apartment in Melbourne's Eureka Tower in a bid to pay off most creditors. The scheme has been backed by administrators Cordamentha in a report covering 88 mainly dormant companies with, as I said, it would be a better outcome than the companies going into liquidation which could leave creditors with no return. Under the plan, ex-Grocon staff would be fully paid out alongside small creditors, while the Australian Taxation Office could receive as little as 20 cents in the dollar on a $14 million debt. Larger creditors and bond providers would take the biggest hit, receiving returns ranging from 3 cents in the dollar to the possibility of being fully paid out. Their returns may depend on the success of Grocon's high-profile court case against the New South Wales government over its treatment at Sydney's Harborside Barangaroo Precinct, with claims that James Packer's Crown Resorts and developer Lendlease were favoured to the detriment of the Melbourne builder. An AGL Energy will start construction on a large battery at its power station in Adelaide after giving its first form commitment to build a grid-style storage plant costing up to $200 million. The final investment decision on the one-hour 250-megawatt battery comes as a major electricity and gas supplier is progressing a range of major storage projects, including one at its Luoyang plant in Victoria, for which it lodged an approvals application on Tuesday. The Torrens Island battery, the cost of which wasn't given, is targeted to be fully online by early 2023. It was first flagged by AGL in November as part of its strategy to roll out 850 megawatts of storage across the national electricity market by 2023-24 to help replace the closure of coal power plants and ease the transition renewable power. And that's it for this week. 
And next week, I'll be talking to Bill McClellan from Y2Q, which is in the business of building teams. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake, getting his insights on the direction of the Australian economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.